When we look at our community and our country, do you sometimes feel like there is no hope? It looks like the immoral sexual revolution is winning. It looks like marriage between a man and a woman is being redefined. It looks like life is being redefined. Babies are killed, and one day soon, I'm afraid, the elderly are going to be put down as useless. It looks like personhood is being redefined. It looks like wickedness is winning. The community rejoices in their wickedness. They march in pride over their debauchery. They say sin is good and righteousness is evil. People do all that is right in their own eyes. We need a revolution. Not a sexual revolution, but a gospel-provoked revolution. Today is a call to arms. But friends, the weapons are not our persuasive words or our physical strength. The weapons are not our protests. The weapons are not even our voices. There is only one weapon that brings spiritual revolution. The weapon is the Word of God. The weapon is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel shakes up communities. The gospel shakes up the world. We see in our passage today that that's true. Just realize the revolution might not bring the results our flesh wants. Instead, it might end up meaning our death. Maybe not physical, but definitely spiritual death. We are going to die to self as we proclaim the gospel. The more we proclaim the gospel, the more we're going to be called to say, Not my will, but your will be done, Lord. Today we're going to see how the gospel shakes up a community in our passage. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been making our way through Paul's sermon in Pisidia, Antioch. He laid out a clear presentation of the gospel from the Old Testament. Gave us an exposition of the entire Old Testament. Much like Peter and Stephen before him, Paul boldly spoke the truth. He gave the essentials of the good news of Jesus Christ. And notice in verses 16 to 39, we saw that the gospel was unfolded. The gospel presentation that Paul gave included the faithfulness of God. The provisions despite Israel's character that God continually showed them favor and grace and mercy and continued to pour out his blessings. So while explaining God's faithfulness toward Israel, Paul also is exposed the sinfulness of Israel over her history, showing the depth of depravity of these people and ultimately of all humanity, reminding all of us that despite God's faithfulness, we are born with a propensity to have ungrateful, unthankful hearts. But God is faithful despite that. Notice also he brought up the promises of God, the promise specifically of a king. There was a promise of a Messiah, the promise that the king would be rejected by his own people, the promise the king would not undergo decay in the grave when he was killed, the promise that God would acknowledge this king as his son. 
So inheritance, in the idea of the, a promise from God, or inherent rather, in the idea of the promise of God, is the clear declaration of God's sovereignty. See, again, it's very important for us to understand, if God promises something to happen before it happens, then that means He controls the future. That means He knows what's going to happen before it happens. Because otherwise He would be a promise breaker, not a promise keeper. He has to be sovereign. And God never lies. And if God says something's going to happen and it happens, then that shows He knew beforehand. And He's sovereign. So Paul was clearly stating, God has kept His prophesied promises in sending Jesus Christ. He has given us Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. And at the same time, He courageously holds the Jewish people of Jerusalem responsible for their rejection and crucifixion of the Son of God. So while God is sovereign, He also says man's responsible. They're responsible for the rejection of the Messiah. And He calls them to that. So again, in God's presentation of the gospel here through the Apostle Paul, there was the exaltation of the sovereign God, the exposure of the sinfulness of mankind, and a revelation of the resurrected Savior who is ruling and reigning. And the next essential aspect of the gospel is the forgiveness in God through Christ. We see this in verses 38 to 39. Look at your Bibles. Notice again, Therefore, let it be known, you brethren, that through Him forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. This is the good news, beloved. The law is fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus. Sin is paid for. Hallelujah, right? Mankind can be freed from the bondage of sin. We are no longer under the bondage of the law that truly exposed just how sinful we are. Through Jesus, we can all rejoice in the Lord and be led by the Spirit of God. This is exactly how the disciples are described at the end of this chapter. Notice down there at Acts 13.52. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is great news. Jesus has come and Jesus coming has freed us to walk in the joy of the Lord. Followers of Christ can be controlled by the Holy Spirit and produce the fruit of joy. We know our sins are forgiven and we are not in bondage to sin anymore. And we're not under the law of Moses. Praise God. So we walk in the joy of the Lord, obeying our master because he's freed us. Paul had laid this out clearly and was showing what God was doing through Jesus. This is the great work of God. Paul gave a clear presentation of the gospel, didn't he? And by the way, you notice how concise he is. I mean, it doesn't take much for him to proclaim the gospel clearly and concisely. Next, we see Paul gives a warning to embrace the truth. Notice in verses 40 and 41, the exhortation, the exhortation. Look at verse 40, it states, Therefore take heed, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish. 
For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. This is a very strong warning from the Apostle Paul. Not to reject the work of God through Jesus Christ. This is like, listen up, pay attention, focus, take heed of the message, or suffer the consequences is what Paul says. Just like Israel previously, there's a call for a recognition of God's work as revealed in the gospel message. Listen, when, Paul, when Mark was reading our passage today, our Old Testament passage from Habakkuk, it's a, a look back to a time when Israel did not see their own sin and did not see their own need of repentance. And Habakkuk looks around and he says, These people are a rebellious people. How long, God? How long? And then God answers him with, Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Babylon is coming. Beloved, this was a call from, the, from God through the prophet Habakkuk to pay attention to the work of God. God is doing a work. And if you don't pay attention to the work of God and know that God is doing something, He's raising up these Chaldeans. If you don't know that God's doing something, you're going to be in trouble. There's judgment coming. Now, what does that have to do with the cross? What does that have to do with Christ? The answer is very clear. It is a work of God. God sent His Son. It's a work of God. The Jewish rejection of the Messiah was a work of God. That was all part of His providence. He was raising up the wickedness of the Jews to kill His Son. This was his work. And what Paul says here is, listen up. Don't fall into the same trap that your fathers fell into. Don't look at this work of God and say, oh, we don't have to worry about that. No, take serious the gospel message. Take serious that this is a warning. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish. What's he getting at? He's saying, look, if you don't look and see what's happening, that God has brought his son, you're going to die. It's going to be bad for you. And you say, what's that have to do with me and you? Everything. Everything. We still, and we know the same message. We know the same work of God. God has done something great in Jesus Christ. He brought his son what? To provide a way out of judgment. If we ignore and we reject the Messiah, what will happen to us? The same thing that those Jews that were rejecting their Messiah were going to face. They were going to face the judgment of God. He was doing a work in their day and he's doing a work in our day. And the work is this. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. Turn to Him and embrace Him. Any of y'all that do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't wait another day. If He's not your master, today is the day to submit your heart to Him. Turn from your sin and trust in Him. He's your hope. He's not just an addition. He's your life. 
If not, we will face a just judge one day. That's not just Pastor Mike trying to scare you. That is a promise. God is just. He is holy. He does not take sin lightly. One sin brought death into the world and one Savior's death provided forgiveness for sin for all who repent and believe in Him. Just like God had judged those who rejected Him previously, those who reject Jesus will face judgment also. Don't be a scoffer because you will die. It's the problem of Israel and ultimately the problem of many. Hearing the truth doesn't always translate into humble surrender. Instead, it produces proud scoffing. You understand scoffing is somebody that's proud. Mocking. The fact of the matter is, is when somebody tells us and says something to the effect of, submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, turn from your sin and obey Him. There's something within our soul that says, I don't have to do that if I don't want to. Who are you to tell me what to do? Who is Lord over me? That's what the scoffer does. It brings death. Friends, don't fall into that trap. Don't reject this message as Paul is saying. There should be a call to respond appropriately when the gospel is given. I think many just want to lay out the truth with no confrontation or warning either, by the way. I want you to listen to me closely. Listen, if you are never offended by what is said from the pulpit, if you're never offended by the Word of God, there's a problem. (laughs) There's a definite problem. Probably bad preaching or you just aren't listening. The Scriptures are very confrontational, aren't they? Christ says surrender. Christ says, forsake sin. Christ says, go and sin no more. That's a very offensive message, isn't it? But beloved, that's the gospel presentation. That's exactly what Paul does here. He ends his sermon with, hey, better not reject this message or you'll suffer the consequences. That's what he says. But we, no, are we allowed to do that anymore? Not in our culture, in our society. You are never allowed to tell anybody that there might be judgment coming. No, God's love. This is New Testament preaching, folks. I think we need to be careful, don't we? We need to understand that we can face a just judge one day. I think some of us that are believers and have been following Jesus for a while, we take lightly our sin. Still, way too lightly. We think, well, that's just who I am. No! Come on! Christ died for this sin. We must repent. We must trust in Him. We must commit to Him. Now, it's also very important for us to continue to have this humble heart towards the truth. Again, we're all good. We can walk out of this room after a message like this and we can go and start confronting everybody in our life. The bigger question is, is are you confrontable can somebody confront you and you accept it 
I think we all too often, I know I fall into this trap. I see a confrontation like this from Paul and I think, I'm going to confront him this week. When in fact, I should be thinking, oh, confront me. Shake me. Expose me. Anybody like that? I need to be exposed to where I'm not prizing Christ over everybody ever things of this world. Don't you? We need Christ, don't we? Confront me, Lord. Say these hard truths to me. If someone told you, submit to the word, or you could face horrific consequences, how will you respond? Again, what makes heeding a confrontational possible is an awareness of the glory of the gospel. I cannot stress this enough to you. What makes wanting to submit to a confrontation from the word possible? What makes me go, I want to turn? What is it? It's found in verse 39. Look at it in your Bibles. Again, look at your Bibles. Notice. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. There's the, there's the joy. That's the thing that causes me to want to turn, Right? You say, confront me. Why? So I can enjoy forgiveness. So I can know the joy of a relationship reconciled with God. As we've said countless times, repentance, turning from our own self-rule to trust in a sovereign God's rule, is a privilege, not a burden. It's where forgiveness of sin is found. Repentance brings joy of a right relationship with God. It's that I get to curl up in my father's lap again. I get to know that he hears me and he's enjoying me and he's pleased with me. Repentance is not repentance is not a burden. It's a please confront me so I can know the joy of forgiveness more. And that's what Paul laid out. He made it sure he made sure it was in that order too. And I think that's important. He lays out the glory of the gospel and then he tells him what? Turn. He doesn't go, turn, 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 turn. By the way, Jesus loves you. Why didn't he say it that way? I think there's a specific order this way. Why? Because the very thing that causes the believer to turn is the glory of the gospel. Knowing forgiveness in him. And yet we call our children, oh, don't we? We fall into this. We call our co-workers to be good, be righteous, be holy. And yet they don't know the joy of forgiveness, the joy of knowing Him. That's where they're going to obey. we got to do this more, don't we? Do it in this order. The glory of the gospel is our hope. And yet there is a warning. If you don't, you will face a just judge one day. So Paul boldly confronts the people with a warning, right? But it came with a promise of a right relationship with God. So how did Paul's audience respond? Let's look at it. This is what we're going to focus on most of the time today. The response in verses 42 to 52. The gospel can start a spiritual revolution in our community. This is good news, folks. The response of the people in Antioch unfolds in a series of events 
We will look at these events. The rest of our time, we'll walk right down through them. Notice first, there's the initial intrigue. The initial intrigue. Look at verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Now, at first glance, this looks like a great revival has occurred, correct? The response appears to be very positive. The people were begging Paul and Barnabas to uh, further explain the word of God. They want more of the gospel. The little phrase there, it says, begging that these things might be spoken up to them, can literally be translated this way from the Greek. Begging that these words might be spoken to them. These things is literally these words. And again, this is the main theme, by the way, of this whole section from 42 to 52. The main theme is the word of God. Notice in your Bibles, if you notice in the references, look in your Bibles at these verses. Look at verse 42. As I said, begging that these things or these words might be spoken to them. Then in verse 44, notice, the next Sabbath nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Then verse 46, notice, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. And then in verse 48, it states, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then verse 49 also, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. What do you think is the main theme? The word of the Lord. The word of God, the gospel. That is the main theme. When, when an author repeats something like over and over like that, you know, that's probably a big flashlight. It's about the word of God, which would be the gospel, right? So we see the initial response of the people is one of intrigue. They wanted more. Isn't this so typical? You know, you hear, this happens all the time. Somebody's a great communicator, and not, not because they're necessarily a great communicator, but the truth that they speak comes out really good. The Word of God is good. When it's spoken, many people will hear a sermon and they go, Oh, I really like that. I want to hear that again. You know, it's like the story of Benjamin Franklin. He loved to go here. George Whitfield, even though he didn't believe. Why? The reason why was because he loved to hear the way the word rolled off of George Whitfield's tongue. He's an amazing communicator, and the truth of the word is amazing. There's initial intrigue, but beloved, that doesn't always mean true conversion. We'll see that in a little bit. This is a preacher's dream, though, isn't it? Oh, man, how many preachers would... This is what I dream about. The congregation that says, give me more. Stay up there. Preach some more. Matter of fact, come back next week, please. I want to hear more. Come back. In fact, they follow Paul and Barnabas wanting more explanation. It's as if they can't get away from them. They want more of the gospel. Tell me more. I just want more of who Christ is. I want the word of God more. It's all, it was also not just a few, but notice it says, 
But many of the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles wanted more of the word. And the missionaries were able to encourage the followers, it says, and they encouraged them to continue in the grace of God. And again, I think that this is talking about Paul and Barnabas. As these people follow him out, and they're walking out, and they're like, give me more, give me more. Paul and Barnabas turn around and they say, hey, stay pursuing the grace of God. Stay pursuing the grace of God. And what is the grace of God, by the way? It's the message of Jesus Christ. That is the unmerited favor of God. Again, that's the word of God that's being referenced here. Pursue Christ more. Pursue that. Don't stop pursuing the truth of the gospel. Don't stop stop seeking to know Jesus more. Beloved, this is what we say from this pulpit over and over. This is our message. This is our mantra. This is what we're about. Continue to pursue Christ more every day. Don't stop. Keep going. And again, this is the shepherd's greatest joy. They proclaim the truth. They include the confrontation of the gospel. And the people say, give me more. And the pastor is able to encourage the people to further pursue the Lord. And they aren't just listening, they are teachable. At this point, we would be tempted to think this was another Pentecost, a great revival. But friends, learn something from this passage. Initial intrigue does not always mean true repentance. So very important. Just because somebody says, oh, I want more, doesn't mean their hearts have been changed. Please get this. All too often we judge an initial response as a total victory just because there's some visible so-called fruit. But give me more is not always true fruit. As we will see, there were some conversions, but not everyone truly embraced the truth. We'll see it in our passage. But turn with me over to Luke for a second. You know this. This is the way... Christ had described to his disciples the way things would be. Look over at Luke chapter 8. This is what we know from the parable of the soils. The disciples understood it. Look over at Luke 8, 12. And we see this parable being explained. Those beside the road are those who have heard... And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. This is the one I think is described. The next one is the, the, the rocky soil is a beautiful picture of what happened in Antioch, I'm afraid. Look at it. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. And they believe for a while. And in time of temptation, fall away. Unfortunately, I think that's what happened a lot of the people in Antioch. The seed which fell among their thorns, the thorns. These are the ones who have heard. And as they go their way, they are choked with worries and riches and the pleasures of this life. And bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast. And bear fruit with perseverance. Beloved, time reveals the heart condition better than emotional responses. That is so very important for you to understand. 
That's why I don't allow emotions to be the guide in my life. That's one of the reasons. If somebody somebody's tears or somebody's rejoicing, oh, I love the word, this is great. Yeah, great, good, I'll see you next week. That's why I'm not this big fan of those conferences. No offense, I, I, I go to a shepherd's conference and, and together for the gospel and those things are great. But they remind me so much of the uh, those promise keeper meetings back in the old days. Where you, thankfully, shepherd's conference isn't like that. But it's this emotional high that people go to and they go, "Yes, this is great." And then two weeks later, you can't find them with radar at their churches. Beloved, just because there's this great intrigue initially doesn't mean squat. We don't walk with Jesus daily and persevere. Time reveals the heart condition, doesn't it? Did many of the people of Paul that Paul preached to in Antioch embrace the truth? It appears so, but there were also many who were just initially intrigued without a heart change. Notice the next scene now. This is amazing. This is the missionary's dream. The rising division? No, you'll see it in a second. We'll start with the first part and you'll see the division. Notice in verse 44 to 47 it says, back in Luke or in Acts 13, the next Sabbath nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Wow, that would be encouraging, wouldn't it? But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it, is, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Again, the response initially appears to be overwhelmingly good, doesn't it? Nearly the whole city assembles to hear the word of the Lord. This is, wow, this is a great moment, right? This is one of those moments where you say, oh, if we could just get everybody in the city to come out and hear the word of God, and it happens. If we could just get this message to everybody. You ever said that? If I could just get this message to everybody in the city of Tampa, just one time, wouldn't that be great? We think, oh, that'd be good, right? We're all going, yes, great. Doesn't look like it turns out real good for them, does it? Look what happens. Everybody shows up. But the enemy's there. Can you imagine you preach one sermon and the congregation goes and gets everybody, all of their neighbors and all their friends and brings them back the next week? They bring them back the next service all to hear the word of God? But notice next, the huge turnout is not without problem. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. This is almost shocking at first. It depends on how you're looking at it. If you're thinking of it through redeemed heart, right understanding of Christ, you're thinking, what? Why would they be jealous? Why not excited? These synagogues that have been so empty, now they're full. Isn't this great? 
But no, that's not how it works. Beloved, the synagogue is full and the Jews get jealous. Shouldn't they be rejoicing? But again, like many of the Jewish elites in Jerusalem, they viewed themselves as the special people, the clean people, the holy people, the righteous people. They didn't need a Savior to die for them. They were already fine without Him. They just wanted a Savior that could get them what they wanted, which was rule and Rome off their back. If their Messiah had come, then He was there for them only anyway. Couldn't be for the Gentiles. This is repulsive to them. We know from Scripture that this was... However, the ordained response of the vast majority of the Jewish people. You look at John chapter 12. You don't have to go there, but you can write it down and look at it later. John chapter 12, verse 39. And Jesus speaks as much. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. The idea of the Gentiles being included in the blessings of the Messiah were appalling to the Jewish elites. Especially, how could these unclean pagans be here at our synagogue? What in the world? Why are they here? Come on, can't we meet somewhere else? Not here. They can't come here. But they missed the whole message, didn't they? They missed the whole message of the gospel. Do you understand that that's how pride That's how pride blinds the glory of the gospel. When you think you're something, you missed what Jesus did for you. When you think, oh, I'm okay, you missed the glory of how much his sacrifice meant. And all too often, guys, I just want you to remember this, we're all too often to fall back into that same trap. All too often we look at the world and we say, sure, I'm glad I'm not like them anymore. Oh, beloved, you have forgotten the glory of the gospel. It is the gospel that saves. It is the gospel that changed you. And it's the gospel that's changing you. It is Christ and Christ alone. None of us are worthy of his affection. None of us are worthy of His grace. None of us in this room stand up in pride and say, this place is for me because I'm worthy. All unworthy sinners. That's what we are, right? The response is with antagonism and contradictions. Oh, I I can't stress this enough to you. I want you all to be good Bereans. I want you to examine the Scriptures. But let's don't be argumentative. Because we might find that we're on the wrong side. Hypercritical nature is wrong. Stand for the truth. Yes, be gentle and loving and kind. But be careful. I admit it. Some of the times that I've struggled with those guys preaching on at USF, man, the pride would just jump right up in me. And I just like, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? And some self-righteousness jumps up in us. That's exactly what happens with these Jews. That's exactly what happens. 
argumentative, unteachable, antagonistic, contradicting the truth. In fact, they were blaspheming. Now, was it Paul that they were and Barnabas they were blaspheming or God? Well, it doesn't really say, and the way it's worded, it could be either way. And the fact of the matter is, is both were happening. Why? Because if they blasphemed Paul, they were blaspheming God. If they were slandering Paul, they were slandering God because he was God's representative. And he was proclaiming the truth to them. And they were rejecting the message. Obviously, Paul had learned this, hadn't he? On the road to Damascus, when, it said, when, he, when Jesus said, Why do you persecute me? When he was persecuting the church. The point was, the Jews were trying to discredit the messenger. To avoid the truth of the message. And keep from them having Gentiles crash their self-righteous status. Oh, do you understand that this is so prevalent? But notice Paul and Barnabas's response to this. It is shocking. Look at it. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it, And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles. That you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. What we see here is rejection, conflict, and even being slandered. Does not make the missionaries cower. Instead, they speak out boldly anyway. They said, we have fulfilled our responsibility. We offered the gospel to the Jew first. They gave them the truth. Now the responsibility was on the Jewish rejecter's head. That's what they're getting at here. Paul states, since you repudiate it, that is, since you repudiate the word of God, this means since you have rejected the word, the nature of their rejection of the word meant that they were in fact condemning themselves. The rejection of the truth proved they were unworthy of eternal life. And again, I want you to understand something. That just because uh, they weren't any more sinful than the Gentile, wasn't that any of us are worthy of anything other than hell, correct? However, their rejection of the word of God meant that God was not going to credit them righteous, and therefore they were going to be left in their self-righteousness, which would mean what? They had no place with God. Anybody that depends upon their own self-righteousness, their own good works, is what? Filthy rags to God. They're not worthy of His affection. Rejecting the message of the gospel means you think you're good enough to get to heaven on your own. Is basically what that means. Beloved, none of us are. None of our kids are. None of our family members are. And we definitely aren't. Correct? The nature of the rejection of the word of God meant they were in fact condemning themselves. Again, this is a case of Paul clearly stating human responsibility. They are bringing judgment upon themselves because they are rejecting their very own Messiah. And the results were Paul was turning to the Gentiles. 
and he would fulfill what he, his fellow Jews would not do. See, this was the call for God. This was the plan for God. Their plan was, verse 47, God or, or God's revealed will for the people of Israel was this. Accept God, submit to Him, embrace the Savior, and then be what? Lights to the world. The vast majority of the Jews didn't do it, but a few got it. And who were those few? The disciples, the apostles. Those were the ones, and Paul was one of them. Notice verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light, a revelation of truth for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Do you, know, do you understand what this is like, though? You've got to admit, you know what Paul just did? He just took gasoline and threw it on the fire. Because, remember, they were jealous because the Gentiles were there. And then what did he just say? The reason why the Messiah came and died to pay for my sin, to provide forgiveness, is so that I would then be a light to the Gentiles. What? He quoted scripture to them. They couldn't stand it. They couldn't stand the word of God. They couldn't stand the idea. Now, beloved, I I want you to understand something very clearly here. This is the call to love one another. This is the call to love the world. See, when we get the gospel, we understand our life is not our own anymore. And our life is all about what? Sharing the gospel. Do you find yourself sometimes so self-reflective and see how bad you are and you don't realize... You don't realize that Christ purchased you so that you could die for others. You're supposed to be a light for others. Why do we obey? Why do we proclaim the gospel? Do we proclaim the gospel so that we look good? Then we've fallen right back into the sinful condition of the Pharisee. But if we proclaim the gospel because we're purchased by God... My life is not my own anymore. My life is about reflecting Christ to others, not me. No more me. And that's what Paul says. But it's gasoline on the fire for the Jew that's self-righteous. They think of them as something special. One thing is clear. True gospel presentations don't always bring about revivals. Did you hear me? Often the gospel accomplishes what Jesus said it would. What was that? Look with me over at Luke 12, 49. Luke 12, 49. I love how... Here's a study for you in your spare time. Take and go through the gospel of Luke. Spend, go back through the gospel of Luke. And then find all the places where Jesus said something was going to happen. And go to Acts and read through Acts and see them fulfilled. It's like wild. It's amazing. All the things Jesus said was going to happen start happening in Acts. And they're just fulfilled. Same thing. I saw this last week with the road to Emmaus. Remember? Jesus explained to them everything from the Old Testament. Starting you know, in the Old Testament. What was the sermon that Paul did? He gave the same thing. That's all it is. is a fulfillment of all that he had said. Here we see it in Luke chapter 12. Look. Verse 49. Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. Uh Uh-oh. So much for peace, right? And how I wish 
it were already kindled. Well, it's coming. It's coming very soon. It comes in Acts chapter 13. He casts fire on the earth. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. That's talking about his death, right? That he must die. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What's the point? The gospel divides. Why does it divide? Why does an understanding of Christ divide? Real clear. Because when we submit our hearts to Christ, we say the only way to live is to submit our hearts to Christ. He's our king, not the world. We don't care ultimately about people's approval. We're not about others. We're about Christ. And that means we speak the truth in love and it divides, doesn't it? This is exactly what happened in Acts 13. You see it. Again, as I said yesterday in the men's meeting, this is not just a section meant to be give us an excuse to pick fights, though. Be careful. It means that our commitment to Christ means saying no to the world for Jesus. The world does not take being undermined lightly. They want to be king, and when we say Jesus must be king... He is our king. This provokes unbelievers to get angry. By the way, anybody that promotes the true gospel is going to be hit from both sides. The antinomian that says there is no law will say, Oh, right. Exactly. You're just putting rules on us. And the legalist on the other side is going to hit you on the other side. You know what they're going to say? Oh, come on. It is about what we do. Clean up. Both of those are wrong. Both of those are wrong. It's about Jesus. It's about His glory and His honor. It's about trusting in Him and depending upon Him alone. Nothing else. And that's a very divisive message. But this division does not thwart the missionaries' resolve. Notice in verse 48, they joyfully embrace it. In fact, the Gentiles embrace it. Look at this. When the Gentiles heard this, like to us, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Oh, this is so amazing. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. The Gentiles heard the scriptures that pointed to their own salvation. And true joyful worship breaks out. The words that were like music to the Gentiles' ears were, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. What do they say? What do the Gentiles say when they hear this? That's us! We can be delivered! Yeah! This is great! you got to understand that many of these proselytes and stuff were sitting in the synagogues week after week with the Jews saying to them, You unclean pagan. Yeah, you can sit over there. 
I, you should fear God. It's coming. They weren't giving him hope. Be clean like me. <laughs> That's what they were saying. And Paul says, salvation is for you. <laughs> and they go, wow, really? Let's rejoice. It's time for a party. We can be delivered from our sin. There's no punishment for us. Christ paid for our sin too. We can be saved. Our sins can be forgiven. We can be set free from the power and penalty of sin. We see the light of the glory of the gospel. Notice then they began to exalt the word of God. Isn't this ironic? The people of the word. The people that were preaching it. Rejected it. But the people that really got saved then received it fully. And rejoiced in it. And exalted it. I love this book. And you should too. It gives us hope. It's our life source. We know Christ more through it. It's wonderful. Give me more. How about you? Give me more. Just keep going. I know I'm at 1215. Keep going. I want more. Anybody else? I want more. What we do with the word of God reveals where our heart is. It appears a large number of the Gentiles received Christ and they believed. The faith obviously included a commitment to his word. They had changed hearts. They had a total change of mind. They were not committed to God only with words. But they forsook their sin and they embraced the Lord of the Bible. Again, one of the fruit of repentance that is often overlooked is joy. Knowing we are forgiven, knowing that we've been reconciled to God. Oh, I cannot stress this enough to you folks. Repentance is not a dirty word. It's not. It's a glorious word. Do you understand? If somebody tells you or the Bible tells you or you're confronted by sin, repent of that sin, you should go, yes! Because it's where reconciliation is found. It's where renewed righteousness and renewed fellowship with the Lord is found. It's where joy is found. And this goes from the beginning when you first get saved to when you are 90 years old. Every time you repent, there is joy. Every time you turn to the Lord, there is joy. Why? Because we're reminded that our sin is forgiven. We're reminded that we have a Savior that lives and abides and forgives and gives mercy and sets us apart. The greatest word in all the Bible next to Jesus is repent. (laughs) For it's there that we find our joy in the Lord. That's what happened with these people. 
The Gentiles got it. We'll transition into chapter 14 next week. Let's close with prayer. Father, you are kind. You are good. You have sent your Son. And for this we are eternally thankful, grateful. We worship you. We praise you. We thank you. We know, Lord, that we are unworthy of this glorious good news that you have given to us. We thank you for Christ. Lord, we understand fully that we are unworthy sinners apart from your grace. And it is only by your good kindness, by Christ Jesus, that we are saved. God, I pray that if there's any in this room that are wallowing in their sin and don't know the joy of freedom from their sin, I pray that today your spirit will work on them Open their hearts and minds to know the glory of the Savior that came to die for their sin and rose from the dead to give them life. Oh, God, please save. Please bring reconciliation. God, for us that are walking with you, all too often we find the things of the world still pulling at us and tagging it, stretching us and tugging at our hearts. Oh, God, please, we beg you, show us your glory. Help us to know the glory of the cross, the glory of our Savior more, so that the things of this world will become strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace, as the hymn writer says. Oh, God, we need you. Please change each and every one of us. Make us look more like your son. May Christ be exalted in this place and in our lives. May we be a light to the world. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior.